All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, it is Monday, and that means we are standing in the confessional corner. I am Pastor Doug Minton, here with you as we stand talking about the heart of what Apology Article 12b is all about. The fact that there is only one true satisfaction, and that satisfaction is the basis for our understanding of confession and absolution. And we'll get into that in just a second. As this week we look at paragraphs 34 through 50 of this article. Let us return to the main point. The scriptures cited by the adversaries do not speak of canonical satisfactions and of the opinions of the scholastics, since it is clear that the latter were born only recently. Therefore it is pure slander when they distort scripture to their own opinions. We say that good fruit, good works in every kind of life, should follow repentance, that is, conversion or regeneration. Neither can there be true conversion or true contrition where the putting to death of the flesh and bearing good fruit do not follow. True terrors, true griefs of mind do not allow the body to satisfy itself in sensual pleasures, and true faith is not ungrateful to God. Neither does true faith hate God's commandments. In a word, there is no inner repentance unless it also produces the outward putting to death of the flesh. We say this is John's meaning when he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3.8. Likewise of Paul when he says, Present your members as slaves to righteousness. Romans 6.19. Just as he likewise elsewhere says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Romans 12.1 and so forth. When Christ says repent, Matthew 4.17, he certainly speaks of repentance in its entirety, of the entire newness of life and its fruit. He does not speak of those hypocritical satisfactions that the scholastics imagine benefit by delivering from the punishment of purgatory or other punishments when they are made by those in mortal sin. We're getting back to the main point here, that the, it is pure slander to bring in these passages that he quotes here and say that these require canonical satisfactions, seeing that they had been invented in the previous three or four centuries and present, prevent, and created in the scholastic realm and then brought into the church. So these are ideas brought in from debates in the schools, in the universities, that then get handed over into church when those students then become the bishop and the archbishop and all of that. But again, how can you imagine that something that you do while in mortal sin allows you to benefit with lesser time in purgatory? It doesn't make sense. We continue on in paragraphs 36 through 40. Many arguments likewise can be brought together to show that these scripture passages have nothing to do with scholastic satisfactions. First, these men imagine that satisfactions are work that are not due. However, scripture in these passages require works that are due. For this word of Christ, repent, is the word of a commandment. Likewise, the adversaries write that if anyone who goes to confession should refuse to undertake satisfactions, he does not sin, but will pay these penalties in purgatory. Now, the following passages are, without controversy, rules having to do with this life. Repent. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Present your members as slaves to righteousness. Therefore, they cannot be twisted to the satisfactions that are permitted to be refused. 
Refusing God's commandments is not permitted. Third, indulgences pardon these satisfactions, as is taught in the article Repentance, and so on. But indulgences do not free us from these commandments, repent, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Clearly, these scripture passages have been wickedly twisted to apply to canonical satisfactions. See further what follows. If the punishments of purgatory are satisfactions or satispassions, or if satisfactions are a pardoning of the punishments of purgatory, do the passages also command that souls be punished in purgatory? Since this must follow from the opinions of the adversaries, these passages should be interpreted in a new way. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repent, that is, suffer the punishments of purgatory after this life. But we do not care to respond any further to the silly points of the adversaries. Clearly, Scripture speaks of works that are required of the entire newness of life, and not of these observances of works that are not required of which the adversaries speak. Yet by these fables they defend orders of monks, the sale of masses, and endless observances, calling them works that, if they do not make satisfaction for guilt, can still make satisfaction for punishment. Here's the head-scratcher. Okay, you go to confession. The priest tells you that you have to do these things to make satisfaction for your sins so that you don't have to pay them off in purgatory. But you can say, no thanks, I'll just take my time in purgatory. What's the point of confession then? There's no true repentance there. There's no contrition. It's just, okay, I'm having to check this mark, check this box so that I mark down that I can take communion for the next year. I mean, and that was basically medieval Catholicism. If you didn't want to do the satisfactions, you didn't have to. And still today, you don't have to. You just have the time still going for you in purgatory. But Melanchthon's point is made clear. The passages they cite talk about things that must be done. You must repent. You must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How can you opt out of those things if Jesus tells you you have to do them? We don't have the authority to say that. Neither does the church. And that is what we will continue to see going on through the apology and especially into the small called articles in a few months. But as he moves on, Melanchthon then picks back up the scripture passages, which we'll see over and over again throughout this week. The scripture passages cited do not say that eternal punishments are to be paid by works that are not required. So the adversaries are rash to assert that these satisfactions are paid by canonical satisfactions. The keys do not have the command to transfer some punishments and likewise to pardon a part of the punishments. For where are such things read in the scriptures? Christ speaks of the forgiveness of sins when he says, Whatever you loose, Matthew 18, 18. He means sin, being forgiven, eternal death taken away, and eternal life bestowed. Whatever you bind does not speak of requiring punishments, but of retaining the sins of those who are not converted. Furthermore, the declaration of Lombard about pardoning a part of the punishments has been taken from the canonical punishments. The pastors forgave a part of these. We hold that repentance should produce good fruit for the sake of God's glory and command. Good fruit, true fastings, true prayers, true alms, and so forth have God's commands. Yet in the Holy Scriptures we find nowhere that eternal punishments are only pardoned because of the punishment of purgatory or canonical satisfactions, that is because of certain works not required, or that the power of keys has the command to transfer these punishments or to forgive a portion. 
The adversaries are, were going to prove these things. The loosing key in the church forgives sins. Totally, completely, because Christ has totally, completely forgiven sins. The binding key is not to burden people with punishments. The binding key is to burden people with the fact that they are still in their guilt for their sins, that they have not repented for. The binding key is only used for those who refuse to repent. It is not to be given to the penitent in order for something else for them to do. That's not what Jesus talks about. But the adversaries in the confutation were supposed to defend this and prove it, and they end up not doing it at all. Not even bothering with making a sensible argument for it. It's just, well, this is what the church teaches, accepted or not. Well, I don't accept it. And I don't accept it because Jesus doesn't teach it. So therefore, I am very secure in my belief that just because I don't go to confession to a Catholic priest and I don't do the satisfactions that he would prescribe, that I'm still forgiven. My sins are still forgiven because the pastor stands up and says, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is the one true satisfaction. And that's where Melanchthon picks up now as he we go into paragraph 43 through 48. Besides, Christ's death is a satisfaction not only for guilt, but also for eternal death, according to Hosea 13, 14. O death, where are your plagues? It is freakish to say that the satisfaction of Christ redeemed from the guilt, but our punishments redeemed from eternal death. The expression, I will be your death, does not get understood about Christ, but about our works, and indeed not about the works commanded by God, but about some dull observances created by men. These are said to abolish death even when they are completed in mortal sin. It is with incredible grief we recite these foolish points of the adversaries. They only cause one who considers them to be enraged against such demonic teachings. The devil has spread these teachings in the church to hinder the knowledge of the law and gospel, of repentance and being made alive, and of Christ's benefits. For of the law they speak this way, God, deferring to our weakness, has given to people a measure of those things that necessarily binds them. This is obeying laws so that from what is left, that is, from works of supererogation, he can present satisfaction with reference to offenses that have been committed. Here people imagine that they can keep God's law in such a way that they do even more than the law requires, Romans 3, 10 through 20. But Scripture shouts everywhere that we are far away from the perfection that the law requires. Still, these people imagine that God's law affects only outward and civil righteousness. They do not see that it requires true love for God with all your heart, Deuteronomy 6.4, and that it condemns all lustful desires in human nature. Therefore, no one does as much as the law requires. Their imagination that we can do more is ridiculous. We can perform outward works not commanded by God's law. Yet confidence that satisfaction has accomplished God's law is empty and wicked. True alms, true prayers, and true fastings have God's command. Where they have God's command, they cannot be left out without sin. 
But because these other works have not been commanded by God's law, but have a fixed form derived from human rule, they are works of human traditions. Christ says about such works, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, Matthew 15, 9. Such works include certain fasts appointed not for restraining the flesh, but so that honor may be given to God, as Scotus says, and so that eternal death may be made up for. Likewise, such works include a fixed number of prayers, a fixed measure of alms when they are offered in worship by the outward act, giving, glory to, giving honor to God and making up for eternal death. For they assign satisfaction to these works by the outward act because they teach that they benefit even those who are in mortal sin. These are works that depart still farther from God's command, such as pilgrimages. There is a great variety of these. One makes a journey to St. Jacob clothed in metal armor, and another with bare feet. Christ called these, act, these vain acts of worship. They do not serve to reconcile God's displeasure, contrary to what the adversaries say. Yet they decorate these works with magnificent titles. They call them works of supererogation. To these works the honor is assigned of being a price paid instead of eternal death. They are preferred over the works of God's commandments. So God's law is clouded over in two ways. One, because satisfaction is thought to be rendered to God's law by means of outward and civil works. The other, because human traditions are added, whose works are preferred over the works of the divine law. Again, long story short, Christ's death is a satisfaction not only for guilt, but for eternal death itself. It is the only satisfaction for the eternal punishments because it rescues from death itself. As even the prophet Hosea, 700 years before Jesus' death, says, O death, where are your plagues? What power do you have? But again, the adversaries want to point out that, no, no, we do these things and they count because they need to be done, even if the person does it without repentance, being in mortal sin. And they go on to talk about this great phrase, of which we'll talk about here, but also again when we get into Article 20 on good works. Works of supererogation. Who do you know that has done works of supererogation? Works that go above and beyond the law's demands. This is the treasury of the merits of the saints. This is all those things that they did extra, that they earned bonus points with God by doing all these things. Who do you know that has done that? I don't even know a single saint that has done that and especially those that they come up with for the treasury of the merits for the indulgences and things like that is no, no, no. no one absolutely no one has done works above and beyond what the law has said i would even say that our lord and savior jesus did not do works that were above and beyond he did the law perfectly all of it for us, because we can't get anywhere close. But 
the Catholics say, but wait, wait, wait. No, we have all these saints that have done all these great things that have been more than what the law commands. So those get transferred to other people. Really? Really? People actually believe this. Why? Well, because it makes sense. Because if we do things that are provided as extra and above the law, which is exactly what the Pharisees did, they took the Ten Commandments and they made another 600 commandments in order to protect you from breaking those. And it was those 600 commandments that brought about the biggest problems. Those brought about bigger judgments, which is exactly what happens in Roman Catholic piety is if you don't do them, oh, you still have purgatory. And people just put it off, well, I'll, I'll just take care of it when I die, and maybe eventually, sometime in the future, I'll get to heaven. How is that following Christ? How is that bringing about his glory, his forgiveness? It's not there. It's not there. Roman Catholics have been trained for centuries that these are to be prized, these works of supererogation that the saints have done above and beyond what God has required are more to be prized than Jesus' death on the cross. Because, oh yeah, that, that helps you in baptism, but you, know, you have to work your way with fear and trembling after baptism. What a sad sad life. And I'm not just picking on Roman Catholics here. This is a lot of your non-denominational and reformed background people as well. Is that you know once you're saved, now you got to be able to carry it on from there on out. And your works definitely bring about part of your salvation. And that's a very sad sad state of affairs. Because that is not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Jesus came to do, is to take away original sin and then, well, you're on your own from there. Now, Jesus never once says that. I mean, we even look at some of the Gnostic Gospels that have crept up over the years. You know, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, uh, the Sacred Gospel of Mark, you know, and go on and on. I'm, I've got a whole collection of them on my shelf. Not even them talk about, okay, now that you've been saved, this is what you have to do in order to stay saved. No, no, no. What you do to stay saved is repent. Confess your sins. Receive absolution. Not because some saint did a few extra things that weren't required by God that then get transferred to you but because the Holy Son of God fulfilled the entire law perfectly for you, doing much more than you could possibly ever do by giving his life for the life of the world. That is the one true satisfaction. That is the one thing that actually counts in this life. We'll close up this week with paragraphs 49 and 50 as we finish up this section in the second place, repentance and grace are clouded over. Eternal death is not atoned for by pay this payment of works because it is idle and does not taste of death in the present life. Something else must be set up against death when it tests us. 
For just as God's anger is overcome through faith in Christ, so death is overcome through faith in Christ. Just as Paul says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 57. He does not say, who gives us the victory if we set up our satisfactions against death. The adversaries foster needless debates about the pardon of guilt. They do not see how, in the pardon of guilt, the heart is freed through faith in Christ from God's anger and eternal death. Christ's death is a satisfaction for eternal death. The adversaries themselves confess that these works of satisfactions are works that are not required, but are works of human traditions, of which Christ says they are vain acts of worship, Matthew 15, 9, once again. Therefore, we can safely affirm that canonical satisfactions are not necessary by divine law for the pardon of guilt or eternal punishment or the punishment of purgatory. What is the grand scheme of this again? These last few sentences, once again. Christ's death is a satisfaction for eternal death. The adversaries themselves confess that these works of satisfactions are works that are not required, but are works of human traditions. Therefore, we can safely affirm that canonical satisfactions are not necessary by divine law for the pardon of guilt, or for eternal punishment, or for the punishment of purgatory. They don't do you any good. Are good works good? Absolutely. But as we'll talk about again in Article 20, good works are works done in faith in Christ. Not something that somebody has imagined that might be okay with God, but things that we do for the glory of God. Wanting to praise Him. Not try to buy time away from purgatory or buy off some satisfactions. That's not the case. The one true satisfaction is Jesus dead on the cross, but walking out of the tomb on Easter morning. All right, that's it for this week. I am Pastor Doug Mitten again, standing in the confessional corner. Thank you for being here with me, helping me to proclaim this message of the one true satisfaction in Christ's death. And I ask you to be back later this week on Thursday for digging deeper into the Psalms. Come back next week again for the confessional corner as we finish up Article 12b of the Apology, finishing up the idea of satisfactions and absolution and all of that so we can move on to other important things. Not necessarily more important, but other important things, especially once we get into the sacraments. But until next time, this is Pastor Edmund once again, wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology. Amen.